day for us because I am in some fine threads, if you have not noticed. Um, the truth is that Pastor Binu said that he was getting dressed up and then hinted subtly that I should do the same. He literally said, could you at least tuck in your shirt or buy a sweater? So I went to the store yesterday, and this is exactly what the mannequin was wearing. <laughs> Nailed it, right? Um, no, I, I feel like a clown, and I'm going to return this right after service. <laughs> I'm kidding. I can't do that. I lost the receipt, so I can't do that. So, For Christians, this is like our Super Bowl Sunday. It doesn't get bigger or better than this for us. But the truth is, for many of us, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, Easter Sunday, uh, we know it's really important, we know it's a big deal, but if we're honest, sometimes it can be that we're not really sure how it actually relates to us, how it actually connects to our daily lives. I mean, it's really great for Jesus, and we're happy for him, but what does this actually do to us and for our daily lives? Jesus rose from the dead, and, and that might be really important, for example, when you come to die. Right When you're lying on your deathbed or the hour of death has come upon you, the resurrection is really important. But what about the hours while you live? Right? What does Jesus has risen from the dead have to do not just with the hour when you die, but in the hours that you live? Right? Make no mistake about it. We're very happy for Jesus. But our question is, how does this relate to us? What's the connection? In some ways, the resurrection of Jesus then is like that distant relative that you've heard about, that you know is connected to you, that other people are excited about and think you should be excited about, but you're not really sure who they are, what they are, or how they're connected to you, or what their relationship with your life is. Uh, perhaps you can relate to that, right? Uh, if you grew up like I did, my mom was one of six kids, dad, same. So that meant that I had lots of aunts and lots of uncles and lots of cousins and lots and lots and lots of relatives. For example, I remember when it was time for my wedding, I remember having the same conversation over and over again. We were pushing around 500 invitations already, right? And 500 is not because we're popular or important, we're Indian, just the way it works, right? There's a billion of us. And so if you're brown, you're related to me somehow and we have to invite you to the wedding. And so now we're at 500 invitations, and Dad would come in with this panicked look on his face, real serious, real passionate, and he'd go, oh, how could we not invite Uncle Roger to the wedding, right? Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, right, like you have someone named Roger in your family, right? <laughs> so it, it was more like, how could we not invite Uncle Tortacarvel to the wedding, right? <laughs> so then that's when I start, and I go, Uncle who, Uncle what, who's that, right? And Dad would get real passionate. Uncle Tortacarvel. That's your mother's, father's, uncle's, second brother's, third daughter's, fourth son-in-law, right? And I go, oh, Uncle Tortagarvo, of course, we got to invite him. He's family, right? So then you show up to the wedding, I kid you not, and there's 40 people you know and 500 Uncle Tortagarvos that you have no idea who they are. I'm not exaggerating. Shainu and I were walking around our wedding going, is that guy your relative or is that guy my relative? Because we had no idea, right? That's what the resurrection can sort of feel like. Y you know it's important. Everyone's making a big deal about it. Everyone's excited about it and thinks you should be excited about it too. But deep down, you're not really sure how does this connect to you? What difference does it make on a Thursday morning, on a Saturday evening? What, what difference does it make in your actual life? How is it related to you? So then here's what I want to do. This morning, I want to reacquaint you with that distant relative. I want to reintroduce you to the resurrection and I want to allow the scriptures to give for us a few reasons why the resurrection matters, and more so why it matters today. 
right? Why the resurrection matters and why it matters in your life today. So pray with me for a second so we can ask God for his help and then we'll consider his word together. Our Father, we do thank you. You have already put joy in our hearts. Our hearts are happy and glad. And now we ask that you would only increase our joy as we consider your word, as we hear it, as we sit under it, as we have it unfolded to us. We pray that our joy would reach to a full fire and flame, that we would come out of this singing passionately, more in love with you, and better ready to be witnesses for your great name. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, we ask and pray. Amen. One of the media sections in the Bible about the resurrection of Jesus, and particularly why it matters to us today, is a chapter called 1 Corinthians 15, right? That's the section that Peggy Sue read for us. And in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul, or the Apostle Paul, is writing to a young church plant just like Seven Mile Road, and he, in chapter 15, begins this lengthy discussion about the resurrection, what it is, why it matters. And in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, what Paul does is he goes out of his way, he goes to great lengths to show you the historicity of the resurrection. He wants you to be very sure that this is not some fable, this is not a wives' tale, this is not a myth, this is not a, oh, I wish it were happy and nice this way. This is real, and he wants to go to great lengths to show you that. So in the first 11 verses, for example, he'll name some of the people who saw the resurrected Jesus. He'll say things like, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the disciple. Well, you go, okay, Peter wanted Jesus to be alive, so that doesn't really count. Well, then he goes, but he also appeared to the 12, to the apostles, same deal. But then he appeared to 500 at the same time, and Paul adds, many of whom are still alive today. That is Paul's way of saying, while I'm writing this, many of the 500 are still alive, so as to say, you could go ask them. This could be verified. This could be tested. And, and then he says 500 at one time. So, for example, when in our day, when you try and figure out what exactly happened 2,000 years ago, because nobody can deny something happened, the world changed. Right, but what happened? And so we come up with things like maybe it was a hallucination by a bunch of people who wanted to see him alive. And yet anybody worth their salt will tell you that 500 people don't share the same hallucination at one time. That, that medically doesn't happen down to its details. And so he's trying to tell you 500 people, many of whom are still alive, saw him. Then he goes on to say, and after that he appeared to James. Now James is an odd name because James is Jesus' kid brother. And and James didn't really think very much of his older brother. If your brother is walking around claiming to be God, you're not going to think very much of him either. And so James didn't have a great opinion about Jesus, certainly didn't believe him, until he saw his dead brother alive again. And suddenly his heart changed. And that was the same man who literally went to his grave believing in that resurrected Jesus. And then he says, last of all, he appeared to me. I mean, if there was one man on the planet not looking for Jesus, not just wishing he would come back, it was Paul. Because Paul was formerly a man named Saul. Saul was not a church planter, a church pastor, a, a lover of Christians. Church, Paul was a, a church terrorizer. He was a terrorist who literally wanted to see every Christian dead. In fact, when he saw Jesus alive, he was on his way with papers in his hand ready to kill Christians ready to put them in jail. And then he saw Jesus alive, and it changed him too. And so Paul, in the first 11 verses, is saying, I want you to know this thing really happened. He's gone through great lengths to show you the historicity of the resurrection, but even having done so, there's still some folks in the church who are not sure. 
who just have a hard time believing it. And I think we could sympathize. I, I've been there. I trust you've been there as well, which is, look, I, I think the people of Corinth would have said the same thing we would say, our city would say, our world or culture would say, which is, Paul, look, if you want to believe that your soul flies off to some happy place when you're dead, you want to believe that your invisible soul that no one can test, no one can, no one can prove, flies off to some cloud, you play a harp, no one's going to bother you. Fine, Saul. But if you're going to start going around places telling people that the body that was put in the ground, that body came back to life, as in resurrection, come on, Paul, you can't be serious. Right? That, that's the question that's prevailing throughout the church. That's sort of the doubt and the skepticism, and that's who Paul wants to turn to address. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, verse 12, here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So what Paul's saying is, look, if I'm going around and all the apostles are going around telling everyone that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, that's what we're proclaiming. How can it be that some of you are still saying there is no resurrection of the dead? But here's what Paul does. He says, okay, let me humor you for a second. Let, let me just play out your scenario for a second. And so Paul entertains them and their doubt, right? Here, here's some Christians who are in the church and they think, you know, maybe you can be Christian and in the church without the resurrection. And Paul says, let's just think through this for a second. Let's walk down that path with you. Say there is no resurrection. That's what he gets to in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So here's what Paul's saying. All right, let's, let's walk down the logic of what you're saying. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if, if that doesn't happen, didn't happen, can't happen, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And then in verses 14 through 19, he begins to say, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, well, if Jesus is not alive, this entire thing crumbles. This whole thing falls apart. You see, the resurrection is not incidental, tangential to the Christian faith. It's not sort of like your appendix. You could sort of live with it or without it. The resurrection's the heart of the whole thing. If this thing stops, the whole thing stops. The resurrection is like the Jenga piece that's holding the whole thing together, right? You dislodge that, you pull that out, the whole thing goes, tumbles, crumbles down to the ground. And so in verses 14 to 19, he begins to think through, here's what's at stake if there is no resurrection. There is nothing left to uphold Christianity. It has no worth or value, is what he's going to get to. Which is why in verse 20, by the way, he immediately comes back and says, but I want you to know what I really think. Verse 20, he says emphatically, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Right, Paul is saying, but I want you to know the fact. The fact is that Christ has been raised. It did happen. And here's why that then matters. You see, verse 20 is sort of the key to understanding the verses before. If you want to really understand 14 through 19, you've got to get 20. Because in 14 through 19, what Paul does is he tells you the negative. He says, look, here's what's lost if there is no resurrection. But when you get verse 20, you get everything is flipped on its head. So now you can see 14 to 19 as here's what's gained because there is the resurrection, right? 14 to 19 is here's what goes if there's no resurrection. But because of verse 20, it's rather here's what stays because there is a resurrection. 
So in these few verses, here's what I want to do quickly. I want to give you four things that are true because Jesus rose from the dead. Four reasons why the resurrection matters and matters today and should matter to you. Here's the first. Because Christ has been raised, you can proclaim the gospel confidently. Here's the first, Sabamaro. Because Christ has been raised, you can proclaim the gospel confidently. It matters today. Look at verses 14 and 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, if Jesus did not rise bodily on that Sunday morning, then we're basically false witnesses. We're testifying falsely. We're misrepresenting God because we're going around everywhere telling people that God did something that God didn't do. And that means then that your faith is in vain and our preaching is in vain. And that word vain there is a word that means empty. It means without effect. It's fruitless. It's useless. And so what he's saying is, look, all our preaching doesn't matter because it doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. And so what that means is, look, I can stop doing this on Sundays. And moreover, you can stop trying so hard to share your faith. You don't have to worry about sharing your faith with your spouse, your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, your neighborhood, your city, your community, your world. None of that matters because if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Our sharing of the gospel is in vain. None of it matters anymore. Now, here, this is where sort of our world would come, our culture would come and sort of pat us on the back and give us a little bit of a pep talk. Our world would come and say, come on, cheer up, Christianity. It's not so bad. You still have a lot going for you, right? You're good, you're moral, you're smart, and people like you, right? This is where our world would give us a pep talk and say, listen, the sooner you realize that you're like all the other religions of the world, the happier we'll all be, right? The sooner that you realize what you do is like what every religion does, which is basically tell people how to be a good person. Christianity, if you can just accept your position in the world, that it's just another voice with all the voices showing us how to be better, then you would see you still have great worth. You don't need the death and resurrection of Jesus. You've still got a great message to share. And the Apostle Paul would say, rubbish. Paul would say, the message of Christianity isn't how to be a good person. Christianity isn't ethics 101. This is not a course in morality or how you should be a better person or kinder or sweeter neighbor. That, that's not at all what Christianity is. The Christian message is the declaration, the announcement, the pronouncement from the living God of the universe who made the whole thing that this world is messed up because of our sin. And sin is just a way of saying our failure to love and obey God. And because of our failure to love and obey God, we have messed everything up. Ourselves up, one another up, the world up. But that the God whom we have messed up against, whom we have not loved or trusted, has done something about that have, by not treating us as our sin deserved, but rather coming into the world himself through his son Jesus Christ to do something about our mess, to do something about sin. 
and that Jesus came into the world to take the sin of the world upon himself, that he should die in our place for our sins. But then on that Sunday morning, he should rise again, showing that he had power over sin, defeated it forever, and changed the world to be a different place. And that those who now trust in him, who acknowledge their own sin and their wrongdoing, and show that they have nothing to offer God except free grace from a loving God, who trust in the work of this son who died in their place and rose for the forgiveness of their sins, can now be forgiven and live different and themselves be raised spiritually as they await to be raised physically and that Jesus is coming back and will make all things new and rid the world finally of sin and everything will be put back together again. Don't reduce that to here are three reasons why you should help little old ladies cross the street. If there's no resurrection, then I'm standing here on a Sunday going, point one, they're little, right? Point two, they're old. Point three, you should help them because they're ladies, right? Come on. If there is no resurrection of the dead, you have taken Christianity, and you have taken Everest and reduced it to a speed bump. You have taken the Pacific and made it a puddle. There is nothing, no majesty, no power, nothing about Christianity if the resurrection is removed. Which is why Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. But verse 20 is the key. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And brothers and sisters, that changes everything. That means now that quite the opposite, our preaching is not in vain, but worthwhile. Our preaching is not, your proclamation of the gospel is not purposeless, but purposeful. It, it is not empty or hollow, but full. It is not powerful, but powerless, but powerful. It is effective. It is fruitful. It does do something. It does accomplish something. So that when these puffs of air, and that's all they are, go from my mouth into your hearts, actually something can happen. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you and I can proclaim the gospel, and we can do so confidently. Listen to me, Christian. You are not a charlatan. You are not some slick snake oil salesman. You are not selling a gimmick. You're not selling a pyramid scheme. You're not promoting your agenda. You have been chosen by the living God to be his ambassador. That is to go into the streets and cities and people of your life and world and proclaim to them the announcement of a God who loves this world and to make his plea through you be reconciled to God. You don't need to be far anymore. There's a God who came near and that message like our children is to go out from you through the world so that God might announce to you, you are speaking his message. Therefore, you have his approval. You are on his agenda. You have been appointed to his mission and not your own. And because of that, Christian, weak as we are, imperfect as we are, as frail as our puffs of air might be, you can be confident that God brings about truth. Right? The, the message of the Bible is this, that the human condition, apart from God getting involved, is that we are all spiritually dead. The moment you're born into the world, you take life and breath with your body, but your soul is dead. But the resurrection reminds us God happens to be in the business of raising the dead. And he will choose often to do so through your puffs of air. 
your word, your proclaiming of the gospel are often the very means by which God raises those who are spiritually unaware, spiritually ignorant, and spiritually dead. God has chosen that your words should be the ones. And listen to me, Semaro, that should be of great encouragement to you, that you can proclaim the gospel confidently. Let, let me just try an example, hopefully to encourage you, just an experiment. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, I'm not going to embarrass you, right? If you're here and you're a Christian, and if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. We hope and pray that the hearing of this might have some benefit to your heart. If you're here and you're a Christian, if you became a Christian through some, let's say, a, a Christian radio or Christian TV or some Christian message you saw from TV or radio, would you raise your hand for a second? All right, we got one. Thanks so much. If you're here and you became a Christian because you attended a Christian event, a meeting, a crusade, uh, some event where someone spoke one time and you became a Christian through that, would you raise your hand? Okay, we got a few more. That's me too. I went to a crusade when I was nine years old and it changed my heart. If you're here and you're a Christian because somebody shared the faith with you, that is a dad, a mom, a brother, a sister, a friend, somebody in church, maybe it happened once, maybe over a period of time, maybe it clicked in a moment, maybe over some time you realize you're a Christian, but it was through somebody sharing their faith with you. Would you raise your hand? Would you look around for a second, Samaro? That is how God causes the dead to come to life. It's through weak and feeble people like us proclaiming the gospel confidently to one another and trusting that the God who raised the dead does it all over the place. This room is filled with people who came to life because somebody opened their mouth with puffs of air. And God used those puffs of air to convince even the most hardened and unbelieving and skeptical heart and bring it to faith. Christian, listen to me. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you can proclaim the gospel confidently today. Here's the second. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, you can be forgiven. Look at verse 16 and 17. Paul says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here's what Paul says now. He says again, look. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. And he says, you are still in your sins. Now think about that for a second. You got to sort of put on your thinking caps with me. What does the resurrection have to do with the forgiveness of our sins? Right, because that's the point Paul is making here, right? He's making a connection to say so much so that if Jesus is not raised, you are still in your sins. That is, you haven't been forgiven. So Paul is saying there is a connection so much so that without Easter, there is no forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you, but that's sort of puzzling to me. Because if you've heard the Christian message ever, you've heard that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. Right? Isn't that what we gathered on Friday for? Isn't Good Friday the message that Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins? But here Paul is saying, if he's not raised, your sins haven't been forgiven. If there is no Easter, you are still in your sins, Paul says. So if Christ has not been raised, there is no forgiveness of sins. You're still in your sins. How could that be? Think of it like this. I got a four-year-old boy named Micah, right? Now say Micah disobeys. He does something wrong. 
and I send him to his room. I send him to his room to pay for his wrongdoing. How do we know when the punishment's over? You see, as long as he's in the room, he's in there doing what? Paying for the wrongdoing. Paying for what he did wrong. In fact, the only way we know that the punishment is over, the only way we know that the sentence has done, that he's adequately paid for what he went in there for, is when he comes out of the room. For as long as he's in the room, it means that the wrongdoing is still an issue. But the empty room is the proof that the wrongdoing has been satisfactorily paid for. So likewise, the empty tomb is the proof that sin has finally been dealt with. If Jesus remains dead, then it means that sin still is supreme. If Micah stays in the room, then it means the wrongdoing is not yet cleared. The punishment's not over. He hasn't paid long enough. And the longer he stays, the more you know it's still not done. But when he emerges from the room, you know it is no more an issue. It's behind us. We can put it away. So likewise, the Bible tells us that the reason there is death in this world is because of sin, what, what we would say our wrongdoing. And if Jesus stays dead in the tomb, then it means that sin is still supreme, that our wrongdoing is still an issue. It hasn't been forgiven. It isn't removed. It isn't done. It isn't defeated. And if sin is still supreme, then death still reigns, and we are all still in our sins. But verse 20 is the key. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that changes everything. Because now that means quite the opposite. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, the empty tomb is the proof that sin has been defeated. That the Father has accepted his sacrifice. The payment was enough. It is no longer an issue. It is done. The resurrection is the proof that the cross worked. The resurrection is the proof that the cross worked. And so, Christian, that means today you don't have to walk around with guilt anymore. Even that thing that most haunts you, even that stain and that shame, you can believe, I can believe that our sins are really forgiven. Because he raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead, it means we are not anymore in our sin, but we have been forgiven. Here's the third. Because Christ has been raised, third, you know the dead in Christ will rise. Because Christ has been raised, you know, you can know with certainty that the dead in Christ will rise. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Here's what he's saying. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, I've shared this with some of you before, but, but this was especially relevant to me this year, just a few weeks now ago, a, a few months ago, in light of my father-in-law passing away. In fact, as I was thinking about it, I realized that in just the span of a few weeks, my four-year-old boy had already been to three funerals. Because right after dad died, another friend died, and then another died, and loved ones and lost ones, one after another. And many of you know that pain because you've shared with me, watching your own aging parents. We've reached a season, many of us in life, where we're now not attending weddings anymore as much as we're attending funerals. And in light of that, I want you to say here, when I was standing at that casket and standing by that grave or at that viewing or yet another funeral, the one thought that dominated every thought in my heart 
because those who are in Christ will rise. Those who are in Christ will rise because here's the opposite. Paul says, look, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep, which is just a euphemism for dying, those who have died in Christ, he says, have perished. That is, they're lost. Right? We already said, if Christ has not been raised, they're still in their sins. And so think of the consequence. If they're still in their sins and they're dead and there is no resurrection, then either it means when the lights go out, there's nothing more and it's done. I hope you enjoyed this ride for as long as it lasted. Or worse still, that they've died in their sins. And that all awaits is what awaits all sinners, is judgment and condemnation. They have, he says, perished. Those who are in Christ have perished. But again, verse 20 is the key because he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And friend, that changes everything. It means that now those who are in Christ will also rise from the dead. And I want you to hear this. Resurrection is not just that when you die, our soul goes off to some happy place. I want you to hear that as clearly as I can say it. Because I've been a Christian for a long time. This didn't click to me till last year. Resurrection is not that when you die, you go off to some happy place. Resurrection is more than that. You see, when Jesus died on that cross, on the Friday itself, he told the thief that was lying next to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What does that mean? That means that Jesus had every confidence that his life would continue post-mortem, post the grave, that there was more, right? So much so that his soul, his spirit would be on in paradise and the thief would join him there. And yet here's what I want you to hear clearly. Nobody called that resurrection. Jesus was confident that there was life after death, but that's not what anyone meant when they said resurrection. On that Saturday, when everyone was sure that Jesus' soul had gone off to be in paradise with the thief, they were all happy for Jesus, but they were sad to themselves, and nobody said a word. Resurrection is that on that Sunday, the body that was put in the ground was no longer there. That's resurrection. Resurrection is not just that my soul goes off to a happy place, but that through the resurrection of Jesus, my body will come back glorious, new, transformed with properties you can't even imagine. But physical is the future that awaits the Christian. Because nobody announced resurrection on Saturday. It was when the body that wasn't stolen, that wasn't lost, that wasn't just disappeared, when that body that was put in the ground came back, that's when the Christian said resurrection. That's the hope of Easter. The hope of Easter is there is a physical bodily resurrection for Jesus and for those who are in Jesus. That's why Paul, if you remember in verse 20, he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. First fruits is sort of the idea of, look, when you have a harvest, you grab the first ripe one, and it's sort of a, a sign of the rest of the harvest that's to come, a prototype of what's yet to come. So likewise, Jesus' bodily resurrection is the first fruit, a sign of the kind of resurrection that awaits you and me. Now, if you're tracking with me, if you're listening carefully, some of you are thinking, Ajay, come on. You can't be serious. Some of you are thinking, Ajay, j just for a second, do you know what happens to a body when it goes into the ground? I mean, Ajay, has no one ever taught you third grade science? 
right? Do you know what happens to a body that goes into the ground? It becomes food for worms. What, what happens to the body that's burned up? What happens to the body that's lost at sea? What, what on earth do you mean that this body going into the ground, becoming worm food, is going to somehow be resurrected? If that's your question, I want you to know you're not the first one to ask it. In fact, Paul knew people who asked it. In fact, later in the passage in verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And that's our question. Paul, do you know what happens to a body that goes into the ground? How are you honestly going to say, Paul, that that body's going to come up again? Tell me, Paul, how can something go into the ground, dead and buried, disintegrate, and then come back into glorious new life? Paul, where does that happen? Where in the world, Paul, does something go into the ground, dead and buried, and then disintegrate, and then spring up into new life? You know what Paul says? Verse 36, he says, you foolish person. Foolish not because you're not smart enough. No, you could have a Ph.D., but because you're not accounting for the power of God. This is what he says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, you're being a fool. Because you know why? God has filled the world with examples of this all about. Right? I, I've said this before, but it's worth saying. He says, would you consider a seed, right? So I got a, a seed. You can't see it, but a little brown, ugly seed, lifeless. Now, you know what happens, but imagine I go to my four-year-old Micah, and I say to Micah, Micah, I'm going to take this, and I'm going to bury it in the ground. And then I'm going to say to him, listen, Micah, when enough time has passed, that is going to turn into this. You know what Micah should say to me? You've lost the wonder of it. Micah should say, with what kind of body could a seed possibly be? Until he sees this. Paul's saying, what you're asking me is, where in the world does something go into the ground, be buried, and spring up into glorious life? And Paul says, you fool. If you're not accounting for the power of God, if God can take a small, lifeless seed, it goes into the ground, is buried and gone forever, and yet this comes up, what can the power of God not do? What do you think he awaits for the body that will be resurrected in Christ? If that's what he can do with a small brown seed, what do you think he will do with a body like yours or mine in the resurrection? And Paul's saying, if Christ has been raised from the dead, you and I can know that we will rise with a body like his. And I can't think of anything more significant when you come to the hour of death, whether it be your own or that of a loved one, to know that because Jesus rose, we will rise also. Lastly, hear this. Because Christ has been raised, Christian, you are to be envied. Fourth and finally, Christian, because Christ has been raised, you are to be envied. Look at verse 19. He ends by saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? Finally, what Paul's saying is, listen, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ has not been raised, then Christians should be the most pitied people in the world. And maybe some of you are here thinking that very thing. 
What a pitiful bunch. And Paul would say, if there's no resurrection, we agree. We are the most pitiful bunch there is. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then this whole thing is a sham, and what a pity. Right? In fact, he goes on in verse 30 to say, why am I in danger every day? All the time, at every hour, as I'm trying to proclaim the gospel confidently, I'm daily facing danger. Why would I do that? What a pity. What a waste of a life. In fact, he goes on in verse 32 to say, the only logical thing to do if there is no resurrection is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. You might as well squeeze in all the joy you can into these 30, 40, 60, 80 years because that's all there is. When the lights go out, the lights go out. And so you, you ought to live for yourself, eat, drink, be merry. You ought to maximize and make as much of this life for yourself as you possibly can. Don't take risks. It doesn't make sense. The lights are going to go out. But Paul says, why am I in danger every day? Risking everything that I can, life and limb, so that someone else might hear this good news. It makes no sense. We should be pitied above all people. And Christian, hear me. You and I, too. You and I go through trials all the time, of the worst kind, sometimes even because of our faith. Who does that? Why would you do that? And when we go through trials, what we cheer ourselves up with are promises from the Bible. Things like, this momentary light affliction will be nothing compared to the weight of glory that is to come. Every bit of our hope is grounded in the future of what God will do through Christ for his people. But if there is no resurrection, if this is all a farce, we should be pitied above all people. But verse 20 is the key. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that means that quite the opposite. Christian, you are to be envied. Your life is to be desired. And, and if you're on the outside of this looking in, it's available to you. Jesus doesn't want anything from you. He doesn't need anything from you. What he asks for is humble repentance and faith. You don't bring anything but empty hands that say, I've got nothing to offer this God, but I will receive from his hands all that he has to offer me. And Christian, if this is true, then it's all gloriously true. It means you can share the gospel confidently because he does raise the dead and he does so even through your puffs of air. It matters eternally. It means, Christian, your wrongdoings and your guilt and your sin, you're not still in it anymore. He has risen from the dead. The empty room and tomb is the proof that your sins are done. You don't bear them anymore. Death has been defeated. Sin doesn't have the last word. Jesus does. Christian, it does mean that your body will rise again and you will enjoy a physical, real forever. You know, when you're sitting around with good friends at a good meal and you often say, I wish this could last forever. That longing's not a bad one. In fact, God put it there so that you would know what you were made for. There is a day coming with good friends and the world over, with good food, you and I would physically feast forever in the kingdom to come. And Christian, it means that you have hope not only in this life, but in the life to come. So this Easter, pity not the Christian, but rather become one.
Let's pray.